Good morning. Can you hear me okay? Great. Welcome. We want to welcome everybody here to the services this morning. It's good to see you all. And I hope you are doing well. If you'll open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I might be dating myself a little bit, but one of my favorite comic strips was a comic strip called Calvin and Hobbes. And Calvin and Hobbes was a little boy, and he had a pet tiger. And when nobody else was around, the tiger came alive. And they were, the, the escapades they went on were hilarious, uh, just very funny. But one of the ones that really stuck in my head, and in fact, probably the first time I heard this phrase, was there was a small uh, four-square cartoon. The first one, Calvin comes in walking like a zombie. And Hobbes, the, the tiger, looks at him kind of puzzled. And then, tiger, uh, then Hobbes decides to walk around like a zombie, just like Calvin. And so they're both walking around like zombies. And the caption at the end says, when in Rome... So the old phrase goes, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. And so the tiger said, well, he looks like he's having fun walking around like a zombie, so hey, I'll walk around and act like a zombie too. It was very funny. And yet when we think about it, maybe not walking around like zombies, but how often do we find ourselves copying the actions of those who are around us, not even thinking so? Um, in fact, one of the, uh, when I was going through some training many years ago, they said, you'll often notice in uh, interviews that there will be, people will mimic the, the stance, the, the seating position, even crossing legs or folding hands um, of the other person um, unconsciously. They just do so to mimic them, um, and it just happens to be a force of habit. And I think we, as, as people who are around others, um, do that ourselves, maybe unconsciously. And as it goes, maybe we are doing, um, you know, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, without meaning to, to do so. But today, I want to draw attention particularly to the fact that as Christians, we're called to not do that. As Christians, we're called not to conform to those who are around us, who define the morals and the mores that we're supposed to follow, whether explicitly or implicitly, but we're to recognize what the truth is and to follow the truth, which is so often contrary to what we see around us. So let's take a look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 13. We'll read the 13 through 16. We'll start off there this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And see, we see there that we are called as Christians not to be conformed to the former lusts that we had. We're called to be different. We're called to be transformed, not conformed to what's around us. But we see that we're called not to be conformed. How are we supposed to act? How are we supposed to behave if the people that are around us are not the standard that we're to follow? Well, as you see in the handout, the uh, bulletin this week, Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. 
Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. And we have a number of passages, and I would encourage you to, to use the space in the bulletin to write down these passages, uh, to take them home, to, to read them over, to meditate on them. Uh, if there's anything that I say uh, here I, uh, that doesn't make sense, or it isn't consistent with what you see in the scriptures, I would encourage you to come speak with me and let me know, because everything we do and say should be based on what we see in God's word. Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. A very short passage and yet very substantial. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How are we to be transformed? By the renewing of your mind. And what's the result of that transformation? So that you will prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So we see here, in fact, we're called not to be like Hobbes, following Calvin around, walking like a zombie, just copying willy-nilly what's going on around us. But we're called to be transformed, not conformed. When you think of conforming, you think of a mold that something's poured into, and it takes that shape. And when the mold's taken away, it retains that shape, even though that's not really what it was meant to be. But when we think of transformation, we think of something that's fundamentally changing who it is, what it is, how it behaves, how it thinks. Um, and in fact, it's the very exact opposite of being conformed. Okay, so we're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What does that transformation look like? How does it take shape? As Christians, what are we to be transformed into? And how are we to be transformed? Well, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, very famous passage of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not going to read it, but if you'll please make a note of verses 21 through 45. What I would like to draw your attention to in these verses is there's a pair of sayings that you'll see repeatedly in this set of, uh, set of verses. And many times Jesus says, you have heard it was said. You have heard it said. And that's how it begins. And yet he takes that saying, that phrase that he follows up and he says, and yet I say to you, but I say to you. The transformation that he's drawing in these, con in these contrasts is exactly the kind of transformation that we need to see as Christians. The, you have heard it said was legalism, was the law, was, was a, a rule that the, the Jews were driven, were called to follow and to obey. For example, you have heard that it was said in verse 27 that you shall not commit adultery. It's a checkbox. I can check the box, and I've never committed adultery. And yet that's not what the law was trying to say. Jesus clarifies that and says, you're supposed to be transformed, and the transformation is a change in heart. In verse 28, he follows up and he says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's not a checkbox that we can follow. It's a change in heart. It's a change in attitude. It's a change in the way we think, rather than a simple, yes, I didn't break that rule today, so I'm okay. Jesus is drawing that contrast to say, as Christians, as followers of him, we're not called to check the box and say, I followed that rule today, I'm good. We're called to change our heart, to look at our heart and how we think, what our attitudes are, how we approach people around us and the situations that we find ourselves in. 
Are we fundamentally different from the world around us, or are we conformed to them? We're called to change our character, as we saw in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. We're to be transformed in the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. It's a completely new mind. It's not something that's stale. It's not something that's frozen. It's not something that's, that's stagnant. But it's something that's completely renewed. It's something that's born again. Take a look at James chapter 3. There are many challenges we see in James chapter 3 about the tongue. If you can control your tongue, James says, then you will have control over yourself. That's a fundamental change. It's not just saying, I didn't swear today. I didn't curse at somebody. I didn't take the Lord's name in vain. It's, what do we say? Is what we're saying seasoned? Or is it, is it rough and, and unloving toward those who are around us? So we're called to transform our character and how we behave as Christians. Let's take a look at 1 Peter, back in 1 Peter, but chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, 21 through 25. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed." For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. When you think of the Calvin and Hobbes, you think of Hobbes following Calvin around, walking like a zombie. You think of a, a flock of sheep, they, they kind of follow each other. They kind of, you know, they don't really, you never see a sheep kind of, oh, I'm going to go over. They're all kind of in a bunch, in a mass. And that's exactly the image that we see here. It says, we were continually straying like sheep. Hebrews chapter 2, 12 and verse 2 says, the sin that so easily besets us. This is exactly the same idea. We were continually straying. We were continually following ourselves, falling into the ditch. We were just going along to, to get along. And yet we see that here we have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of our souls. So we're, be, we're to be transformed in the hope that we have through the sacrifice that Christ has made for us. But ultimately, we're to be transformed in glory. Let's take a look at Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. Starting at verse 29. Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 and following. So recall this is the scenario. Moses had been called by God to go to the mount. To go up on the mount. And in fact, he was the only one that was to go up on the mountain. In fact, not, no one else, not even the animals, should touch the mountain while Moses was on the mountain. Not even to touch it. And if they were going to touch it, if they touched it, they would die. So they were to stay away from the mountain. Moses went up. In fact, he went up twice. He went up the first time and he got the Ten Commandments on two stone tablets. He came down and what did he find? 
He found that the Israelites, led by Aaron, had taken the gold, melted it down, and formed a calf. They were worshiping the calf. And that was only in the time that he had gone up to the mountain. He was so mad that he threw the stone uh, tablets down and broke them. And as a side note, he took the, the gold from the calf, he ground it up into a powder, put it into the water, and made the Israelites drink it. This is your God, he was basically saying. It's nothing but dust, and now you're drinking it. But the God that I just went up to speak with on the mount, he's the God that you need to worship. And so I'm going to go back onto the mount, and I'm going to get a, a second set of the Ten Commandments. I'm going to bring them down, the law that you should follow. I'm going to bring that down for you to show you that God is the true God. Not this golden calf you were worshiping that we crushed up into powder and made you drink. That's not a God you worship. The God you worship is the God that controls the universe and the God that will give us the law. So let's take a look at verse 29 and following to see the effect that being near Moses, that being near God had on Moses. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai and the two tablets of the testimony were in Moses' hand as he was coming down from the mountain, that Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him, that is, speaking with God. So when Aaron and all the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the rulers in the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterward, all the sons of Israel came near and commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak but with him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. It's easy to take a passage like this and to simply say, it's interesting. Moses went before God. Moses spoke to God. And because of that, Moses' face shone. When he came down from the mountain, his face glowed after he had been with God. It's easy to say, that's an interesting story. That's an interesting passage. But what does it have to do with us today? Well, how does that affect us as Christians today? We know that happened to Moses, but... That was Moses talking to God, right? Well, let's turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, I'll ask your patience because I am going to read the chapter. It's very important to read the whole chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And here we see he alludes to the tablets of stone that Moses brought down from the mountain. Such confidence in verse 4, we have through Christ toward God. 
Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not by the letter, but by the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. For if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory, in this case, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. So here he's saying that the, the law, the old law, was with glory, and yet what has come since, what has come now with Christ, is even more abounding in glory. Let's continue in verse 12. Therefore... Having such a hope. And again, as Christians, this hope is not in the old law, but is in Christ that we have today. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And he finishes with this. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So we see here that we today, as followers of Christ, not like Moses, where he shone for a little time, but we continue to be transformed. We continue to behold in the mirror the glory of God. And that glory of God has transformed us into Christians, into followers of his son. And as followers of his son, we have a unique um, perspective on eternal life. We have a unique understanding of what will happen. And so we see here that the, the transformation that we have, the glory of the Lord has come to us as followers of his son. Let's take a look back at 1 Peter chapter 1 and finish that section of the 1 Peter chapter 1. We finished reading in verse 16 where it says, You shall be holy for I am holy. In fact, that's taken a quotation from Leviticus chapter 11. But let's read a few more verses after that to understand how we are transformed by Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 17. If you address the Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, 
conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the fu your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And so we see here that we are, in fact, redeemed by the blood of Christ. Let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, a passage that's familiar and it's often read. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, speaking of the blood of Christ. Starting in verse 23. And keep in mind that we, we heard that we are cleansed, that we are transfigured by the blood of Christ. And remember that the, the passage that we read here is, in fact, what was received by Paul. And that he's passing it on to explain how we are to remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us. Verses 23 through 29. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. So here we see a direct connection between the, the bread and the fruit of the vine that represent Christ's body and his blood, that we are to remember the sacrifice that he made for us. If you all remember earlier in the, the sermon we talked about in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus says, You have heard it said, and then he corrects it by saying, But I say unto you. This is another perfect example of that. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. Jesus says here, This is my blood. He says, This covenant, this cup is the new covenant in my blood in verse 25. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We are told to take the fruit of the vine that represents his blood. And yet let's take a look over at Leviticus chapter 17. If you've gotten to numbers, you've gone too far. Leviticus chapter 17. And we'll start in verse 10. Leviticus chapter 17, starting in verse 10. And this passage is about the blood of the atonement. For any man from the house of Israel, or from the aliens who sojourn among them, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood, and will cut himself off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you, on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood of reason 
It is, the, it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Therefore, I said to the sons of Israel, no persons among you may eat blood, nor may any alien who sojourns among you eat blood. So when any man from the son of his, sons of Israel or from the aliens who sojourn among them in hunting catches a beast or a bird which may be eaten, he shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For as for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. Therefore, I said to the sons of Israel, you are not to eat the blood of any flesh or for the life of all flesh is in its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. The Israelites ex uh, observed the sacrifice of atonement. Animals were sacrificed and were killed, but they were told, in fact, to eat um, or to give the flesh that was in part of the sacrifice, um, and yet they were told not to drink the blood, not to partake of the blood. If they did, they would be cut off. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, I am the sacrifice. My blood is the final blood that will be given for your sacrifice and is the final offering of atonement that will be made for you. So the transformation of the understanding of blood of, of bulls and goats that was sacrificed for the atonement of sins is now transformed into the understanding that Jesus Christ was once and for all the sacrifice that was to be made for us. And he is our atonement. He is our sacrifice. And it's his blood that we partake on a weekly basis to remember that sacrifice as he directed us. So we're seeing that the transformation of the understanding that the Jews had to the transformation that we as followers of Christ have in our understanding of the role of blood and the memorial service that we have to remember the blood that Christ shed for us. The transformation that we have in our character, the transformation we have in our speech, the transformation we have in our understanding of what God's direction is for us. But ultimately, the question has to be, what is the purpose of that transformation? We've renewed our mind. We've changed our, our ways. We've redirected our focus now to be on Christ rather than those on the world around us. But to what end? Let's take a look at in Revelation and see how God will deal with his children. Revelation chapter 13. Revelation is a fairly short book, and unfortunately it's uh, scary to many people who are um, not familiar with it. I would encourage you to take the time to read it. It's a wonderful uh, treatise on how the end of the world will come and how God will remember and reward his faithful children. And let's take a look at in verse uh, 11 of chapter 13 to see how the enemies of God will be treated. When I saw another beast coming up from out of the earth, he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. Skipping down to verse 16. And he causes all the small and the great and the rich and the poor and the free men and the slaves to be given a mark on their right hand and, or, or on their forehead. And he provides that no one will be able to buy or to sell except the one who has the mark, either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, that is, the number of a man. And his number is 666. 
And yet we see that for a time the beast has power, has authority, and everyone who follows the beast is stamped with this mark. But let's turn over to chapter 18 and see what happens. Chapter 18. We see that in the very beginning of the chapter, Babylon has fallen. And in fact, um, Babylon the Great is calling in verse 2. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. But let's turn over to verse 21 of that same chapter. And then I saw a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the idea there at the end in that verse is not that it will not be found and that people are searching for it, but that it will, it will be utterly forgotten. Out of sight, out of mind is the phrase that comes to mind. And when that stone goes to the bottom of the sea, it's gone forever. And no one will miss it. So we see here that those who were stamped with the mark of the beast have in fact um, fallen with Babylon the Great. But Christians, for those who are following Christ, for those who have put on Christ in baptism, in chapter 19, Christ comes back and his praises are sung. But in chapter 21... We see that there is a new city in verses 22 through 27 of the 21st chapter of Revelation. Chapter 21, 20 through, 22 through 27. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, and nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we see that here the passage says that there will be no night that God will be the light in heaven. And as we remember the, the absorption that Moses had of the glory of God on his face, so much that it shone even after he came down off the mountain. So we can imagine what Moses had seen when he was up on the mountain. And yet we're promised here that we will see that same glory every single day, forever, through eternity. It's a wonderful promise that we have to look forward to. So the question is today, have you been transformed? Do you find yourself walking around with those Calvin and Hobbes around you that are walking like zombies, mindlessly doing and saying and repeating what you see and hear? Or do you step back and say, where is my focus? Where is my mind? Has it been renewed? Has it been changed, transformed? Not formed to what's around me, but transformed by the blood of Christ. Has my life been changed, been utterly renewed so that as Christian, I am following him and his guidance for me. That question is for each one of us to answer each and every day. If you've already put on Christ, but you find yourself falling short, if you need the prayers and the attention and the help of those who are around you, we are here as your brothers and sisters to help you with that. If you have not put on Christ, this is an opportunity to transform your life, to change your life, to turn your life around, so that you can realize the benefits and the promise that God has made for his followers.
once you make that choice, as together we stand and sing.